Ruth chapter 3 and chapter 4 tonight. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. Well, Sunday morning, we looked at Naomi's place in the book of Ruth. Took a close look at Naomi, the Jew, who went running from the land. Very similar to the way the Jews were driven from the land. She left in a time of famine. The the Jewish people left, were driven out in, in time of despair. But we saw Naomi returning to the land in the same way we see even today in the world in which we live, the Jewish people returning to the land in vast numbers, in droves. And ultimately in the book of Ruth, we see the picture of Naomi restored in the land, which even more powerfully indicates not what has happened to Israel or what is happening to Israel, but will, what will happen to Israel. Naomi's story is emblematic of the past, present, and future of Israel, both the people and the individual. Just in the same way that Ruth portrays the church, that's a background, that's kind of an underlying tenant as you study through the book of Ruth. Ruth portrays the church, the Gentile outsider brought in, Naomi, that picture of Israel, and then Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, portraying for us Jesus Christ. And you don't have to make this stuff up. You know, I don't, I don't sit in my office and look at the words and think, okay, what can we make this mean? It's too clear. It's too obvious. It's too noticeable when we pause long enough to truly read through the verses of Scripture what is going on here and what's being said here. And so on Sunday we considered Israel and a Christian's response to the Jewish person and to the people, to the nation of Israel. What our response should be, can be, must be, I believe, as Christians. I firmly believe that we are called to care for and to care about Israel in the same way Ruth cared for and cared about Naomi. And it's my heart and my desire that even in the small ways at the bridge, we can have a a touch on the people of Israel, on the Jewish people. A Christian can respond to Israel in ways both large and small. And I've seen them both happen even right here at the bridge. It can be as small as showing honor in a personal conversation. It can be as great as lifting up the Jewish people in your prayer closet. Taking time actually to pray for Jerusalem and the peace there. To actually pray for the nation of Israel and the people. It can be as small as simply educating yourself as to what the Bible says about Israel. Not just their history, but what does the Bible say about Israel today? Are there promises listed there, and you know there are, for the Jewish people that are yet to be fulfilled? Be aware of, know, educate, and learn about Israel's place in God's economy. It can be as small as that. It can be as great as becoming an advocate for Israel. And people do it all the time. If you're interested in that, by the way, you can look up Bridges for Peace. There are people who volunteer for this uh, group called Bridges for Peace in individual churches just to kind of be a liaison to what's happening in Israel and what Bridges for Peace is doing. And, and you might be that person. You might think, wow, I can actually be an advocate? for it? Yeah, you can. And have an impact in that way. It can be as small as visiting the country, going on a two-week trip there to see the land, to meet some of the people, to talk to them. Not just for yourself, as I talked about on Sunday, but, but for the Jewish people. To show some sense of solidarity that, that we're here because we do support you. You're not alone in this world. And that's a little thing, but it can be as big a thing as moving there. Oh, you, you're not asking or suggesting any of us move there. Well, no, but Jonathan Zilster did. 
And I never suggested he move there. I just said, hey, come on the trip. And next thing I know, he went before we did and stayed. And so it can be a small thing. It can be a great thing. But the point is to have a heart to truly care for Israel. Whatever we do, we've got to realize the debt of gratitude that we owe Israel. And I firmly believe this. I didn't understand it so much even five, six years ago. But I've come to fully believe that we owe Israel a debt of love. Psalm 122 verse 8 says, For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, as we continue on in our study of Ruth tonight, we've looked at some different things in Ruth so far. We've looked at the fact that Ruth is a picture of the church, and we've kind of got that introduction into Ruth and who she is and what she represents. We've talked about Naomi as Israel. We even talked about a character that's not often seen in the book, and that's the harvest. That truly is a character in the story of Ruth, a picture of evangelism and of what God is doing even in the world today. We've looked at these different things. But tonight, as we finish out the book, the last couple of chapters, it's not Naomi that allures us. It's not even Ruth that's the primary focus. It's Boaz. In fact, it's Boaz who this book is most truly about. Oh, I don't mean Boaz, the historical character. I mean Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. It's Jesus Christ. For Boaz represents Jesus in a way that few other characters in the Bible, few other personalities do. And it's an understanding that I believe makes the study of Ruth more rich than it could possibly be without that. You may recall that Ruth has already met Boaz. By the time we get to chapter 3, they've they've interacted. Chapter 2. She just so happened to wander into Boaz's field. Just so happened to be there the day that he show up. Just so happened to be there with the other paupers and indigents and poor people who are gleaning after the reapers. Remember, that was the law, the rule in Israel, that you would glean after the reapers. They would go through, take the the first fruits, as it were, the the first gleanings, and then those who were poor and couldn't afford land, well, they could go in later. And if that bug gets me, if you see me out of blue, just swing my Bible. Don't take offense at it. It's this bug that I'm watching. Anyway, we've seen Ruth. And you may recall how Boaz was kind toward Ruth and why he was kind toward her. In fact, if you look in chapter 2, verse 11... It tells us Boaz replied to Ruth, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's where we pick up the story tonight. They have been introduced. They know each other. There's a relationship that has started. And now we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. It tells us Naomi, I love this, Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman who's... Maids you were, with whose maids you were, behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. I can almost hear that traditional old Jewish song. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me. This is what she's doing. Naomi is seeking a match for Ruth. She has finally figured out she's back in the land. She's living in the house with Ruth, but she starts to realize, I might be able to do Ruth a favor here. She's done me a favor. She stayed with me. She walked it out with me. She stuck with me. She's even gone and gleaned in the fields and brought back the gleanings to me. Now, maybe I can do something for Ruth. And in her wisdom, 
She's got an eye. She can see what's going on. She decides she's going to help Ruth hook up with Boaz. And that's what we talked about on Sunday. In essence, that Israel, in a manner of speaking, played the matchmaker for the Gentiles and our kinsman redeemer. This is what Israel has done. In fact, keep your finger there. Flip over to Acts chapter 15. Just for a quick view of this. Acts chapter 15. Any Bible students, you know that, that the church began with Jews. It was all Jews. There were no Gentiles at the very beginning. And when the twelve apostles, twelve including Paul, when they founded or began the early church as the Holy Spirit came upon them, it was all Jews in Jerusalem. And they had no idea at the very outset of the church that it was going to include Gentiles. They hadn't learned that yet. The Lord had to give Peter an amazing vision in Acts chapter 10. The Lord had to send Paul out into Gentile areas and have Gentiles respond. The Lord actually had to allow persecution in the church to drive the Jewish people out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and some other areas where the gospel began to spread among the Gentiles. But they didn't understand at the very beginning that was the way it was supposed to be. So in Acts chapter 15, they gather together, the leadership there in Jerusalem, and they have a council. A meeting to figure out what are we going to do with these Gentiles who want to claim this Christianity, who want to claim a connection with us and with Jesus. And beginning in verse 6, it tells us the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, the unfortunate thing about Peter is it would take him his entire life to learn this. He did bring the gospel to Cornelius and to some Gentiles, but he struggles with it. We know that from Paul's writings, because Paul later on will say even Peter started hanging out more with the Jews than the Gentiles and started pulling back from them, started being a little hypocritical. It took Peter a long time to learn this, but at least right now he, he makes this statement. He says in verse 8, And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's he talking about? Circumcision. He's talking about circumcision and, and more broadly he's talking about the law. Why would we now put the law on these newcomers to our faith when we couldn't even keep it ourselves? Remember that. It'll come up again a little bit later. And he says, verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as also they are. Verse 12, all the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Through them. Through who? Through Paul and Barnabas, Jews among the Gentiles. Matchmaking. That's what early evangelism truly was. The Jewish people who had faith in Jesus Christ were matchmakers with the Gentiles drawing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets even agree. 
Just as it is written, after these things, quote, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, James says, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And as they go on, they determine to send out a letter to the Gentile believers and just say, you're one of us. You're in. Stick with us. Matchmaker, make me a match. Praise the Lord that very early on in the church, the Jewish church in Jerusalem paid attention to what God was doing and we can learn a lesson from them. They noticed. They saw that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. They paid attention. And because they were watching what God was up to, instead of trying to determine what they were going to do, they saw what He was doing and because of that, you and I are saved today. You and I are believers today because the gospel was allowed to and, and was poured out to the Gentiles among the nations. Amazing to me. It's wonderful and it's a praise to the Jewish people that early on they did that. Just as Naomi did for Ruth. She intervened because she saw the possibilities of this relationship between Ruth and Boaz. So Naomi now, she's going to counsel Ruth on how to catch a man. Watch this. She says in verse 2 again, Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now that's not because she wanted him to be so drunk that he wouldn't know who Ruth was and just, you know. He, she, she was making sure she was protecting Ruth, really. Wait until everything settles down. Wait until he's all through eating and drinking and beginning to rest. And then do as I tell you to do. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about this preparation on Sunday. But from now, I want you to listen closely. Naomi tells Ruth to do something that has caused a great deal of speculation and controversy over the years. Watch this, verse 4. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, Ruth said to Naomi, all that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. So that means she washed herself, she anointed herself, put on her perfume, she was smelling good, put on her best clothes, she goes down to the threshing floor. And verse 7 says, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, which doesn't, by the way, mean he was drunk, it just means he was satisfied. He was relaxed, he had a good meal, he was ready to take a little nap. And when he had eaten and he was merry... It tells us, verse 7, that he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and laid down. What is going on with this? Now, first of all, if I was Boaz, and as we're going to see in a moment, woke in the middle of the night and there was a woman laying at my feet, that'd be quite startling. I mean... There's a woman who tends to lay next to me, and, but I'm used to her being there. I'm talking about someone who I had only just met. And I'm alone in my bed, and suddenly I look down, and there's somebody there. There's a woman there. And that's why it's caused some controversy. People look at this and they say, what's really going on here? Is this kind of a seductive thing that's happening? Is that what's behind this? That Naomi's saying, hey, just, just go down there and lie next to him, and he'll show you what to do. 
I mean, you could certainly read it that way. People have argued as to what was really going on. Is this the act of a seductress? Is it a way to catch Boaz in a compromising position so that he has to, has to take Ruth as his wife because <laughs> she's now just slept with me and this will look really bad if I don't do something. Is it a moral move on the part of Ruth? And the answer is not in the least. And you probably could have guessed that. The passage has already established Ruth as a woman of great character. As a woman literally of moral excellence, verse 11 down there tells us, Boaz will talk to her and he'll call her a woman of excellence. So we know something of Ruth already, that she has a very good character. This is not about some immoral thing. But to understand what's happening, why she goes down there, lies at the end of his feet, uncovers his feet and waits, we need to understand something about what it was that was covering Boaz's feet. It's the importance of the hem of a robe, the hem of a garment among the Jewish people. Put on your Hebrew culture thinking caps for a moment and we're going to learn something about the hem of the garment. This was incredibly important to the Jewish men especially. It was often woven with tassels and it had trimming on it in such a way that it would declare the position, the authority, the power, the influence of the man who was wearing the robe. You could look at the tassels, you could look at the hem of a man's robe and you could say, okay, based on what I see there, this guy's higher up in his company. Or this guy owns many fields. Or this guy is a priest. We've already seen that back in Exodus chapter 28, verse 31. Talking about the high priestly robes, it tells us the following. You shall make a robe of ephod, of the ephod olive blue. There shall be an opening at the top and the middle of it. And around this opening there shall be a binding of woven work as like the opening of a coat of mail so that it will not be torn. And you shall make on its hem, the hem of the robe of the high priest. You should make on its hem pomegranates of purple and blue and scarlet material all the way around. So at the bottom of the robe of the high priest would be these little woven material pomegranates out of blue, scarlet, purple material. They circle the robe all the way around. Now in between those pomegranates, the Lord said, and I want you to put bells of gold between them all the way around. So you can picture that, right? Little colorful pomegranates with little golden bells all the way around the robe of the high priest. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe, Exodus chapter 28 tells us. That's a fascinating study. And by the way, if you, if you didn't go through that study with us, I encourage you to pick up the tape of the teaching on Exodus 28, because there's something about the pomegranates and the bells of gold that you ought to hear. What they indicate. The pomegranates indicate fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Pomegranate seeds, they're one of the, the richest in terms of the seeds and the nutrition in the seeds of, of any fruit. One of the most prolific in terms of seeds. And those pomegranates going all the way around are a picture, and I'm not going to go into it tonight, but they're a picture of the fruit of the Spirit. The bells, on the other hand, are an interesting picture of the gifts of the Spirit. And we saw in that study, this was, boy, two, three years ago now, we saw in that study that there is a, an intermingling, a weaving together of the fruits and the gifts. And the fruits and the gifts. You see, the gifts without the fruits, if you have nothing but gold bells all the way around, that's just a lot of a clanging cymbal, Paul said, a noisy gong. If you're nothing but all about the gifts, but no fruit. The fruit of the Spirit without the gifts, there's no witness, there's no testimony. The bells, by the way, were a witness... When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and was moving around in there, the priests on the outside could listen and hear the tinkling of the bells and they know he was okay. The tinkling of the bells stopped. That's not good. 
high priest may have been struck down for doing something wrong in the Holy of Holies. So just the sound of the bells was important. The pomegranates and the bells. But they indicated the authority, the place of the high priest. Again, if you want more information about that, study up on Exodus 28 and pick up the, the teaching on that. David, later on, truly felt he had violated King Saul in an interesting story we're going to get to in just a few weeks here in 1 Samuel 24 where Saul goes into a cave and he goes into the cave to, the Bible says, to relieve himself. And as he's in there in the cave relieving himself, David sneaks in. Now the men with David say, hey, take your knife and you can, you can kill him. Here's your shot. Here's your chance. David sneaks in there and he takes out his knife and he just cuts off a little edge of the hem of Saul's, ro- of, of Saul's robe, King Saul. He takes it back outside, but it's, it tells us in the Bible that he was cut to the quick. His conscience bothered him because he's holding this little piece of the hem of Saul's garment. Now I read that, and in our culture, I go, big deal. So he played a practical joke. He cut a little bit of the robe. Big deal. It was a big deal because what David did by cutting off part of the hem of Saul's robe was challenge his authority. Look what I got here. You think you're the king? All around the bottom of Saul's robe would have been insignias and stitchings and weaving that indicated his royal authority as the king of Israel. And that's what David cut into. And it bothered David so much that he apologizes to Saul later for it. The hem of the robe. The Jews understood the importance of the hem of the robe. And there's curiously, by the way, a similar parallel story to the hem of Boaz in the New Testament. You may recall this story. Mark chapter 5 verse 25 says a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had but was not helped at all. Rather she had grown worse. She heard about Jesus. And she came up in the crowd behind him and she touched his cloak. Mark tells us she touched his cloak. Luke tells us a little more. In Luke 8.44 Luke says she touched the fringe of his cloak. The hem of his robe. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction because she touched the hem of Jesus' robe. She understood the hem meant authority. She saw Jesus as one who had spiritual authority. And she thought to herself, if I can just grab a hold of the hem, I'll just touch it as he goes by. I don't have to you know, bother him with my problem. I don't have to draw attention to myself. And so she just touches as he goes by. But in the book of Ruth and in the story of this woman with the hemorrhage, it's not just the hem we're talking about here. It's the hem, H-I-M, it's the Gaal that we're concerned with, the kinsman redeemer. Ruth was seeking his covering. This is what she was looking for when she uncovers on the hem of his robe, uncovers his feet. What she was seeking was to be covered by the hem of his robe herself. You'll see more of that in just a moment. But the woman with the hemorrhage was also seeking covering. A covering of healing. A covering of Messiah. In both instances, by the way, the woman doesn't cover herself with the hem. The woman with the hemorrhage just touches the hem as it goes by. Ruth, you may notice, doesn't take the hem and pull it over herself. She just uncovers his feet and lays there. Why is she doing that? In both instances, the woman either touches or just uncovers the feet but doesn't cover themselves with it. And in both instances, and I think this is interesting, the man realizes his hem has been touched. Boaz wakes up, startled. 
I don't know if his feet got cold because they were suddenly uncovered, but he's startled. He wakes up. He notices something's wrong here, and, and he twists and looks down, and he sees Ruth there. Jesus noticed. This, to me, is one of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture. Listen to this. It says, immediately Jesus, Mark 5.30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth. Now, I don't know about you, but I read just that line and go, that's awesome. That is awesome. He's walking along. A woman touches the hem of his garment and Jesus feels power goes out of him and heals her. And he didn't even do anything. He just feels the power leave. Amazing. He turns around in the crowd, it says, and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing in on you? And you say, Who touched me? Come on, Jesus. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, she knows she's been healed. So not only did he feel the power leave himself, she felt the power go into her and heal her. It's just an awesome scene. And it says that she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. She wanted covering, and she got it. She needed healing, and she received it. And she understood the power, the authority of Jesus. And she knew where to tap into it as a Jewish woman touched the hem of the robe. Back to Ruth. Listen to this. Verse 8. Picture is, Boaz is asleep, satisfied from his meal. And his feet now, Ruth uncovers. She lays down at the end of his feet. Verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. Literally, he twisted around to, to look down. He was startled, bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And I do think that verse by itself is very self-explanatory. What man among us would not be startled to find a woman lying at his feet in the middle of the night? Verse 9, he said, Who are you? It's dark. He can't see who it is. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Listen to what she says. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, literally, Kinsman Redeemer, you are my Gaal. This act, what Ruth is doing here, is a beautiful ceremonial act. It's a show of willing submission on the part of this woman to be covered by this man as her husband. What she's saying is, will you cover me? Will you walk with me? Will you be my Kinsman Redeemer? Will you allow me to come under your protection, the protection of your authority, the protection of your house? Ruth does not get under the covers with Boaz. That would have sexual implications. No, instead, she gets under the covering. She desires to be under the covering of Boaz, which has her spiritual intentions. And I think Hollywood would really mess this up if they tried to make this into a movie. They would miss the subtle and spiritual intimacy of what's going on here. Ruth is saying, will you cover me? Will you cover me? Covering in the Hebrew is the word kanaf. Kanaf. We've heard it before. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz is the one who uses this word. He says, May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, covering, you have come to seek refuge. May God bless you, and may you find that, that covering. May you find yourself under his kanaf. Under his wings, Kanak. And now Ruth repeats this very word back to Boaz. He says, you've come under the covering of God. And now she's saying, can I come under your covering as well? 
in this act of sweet and beautiful submission. She doesn't lay next to him. She lays at his feet. And my friends, that's what we do. That's how we are like Ruth when we come to the Lord Jesus. We lay ourselves at Jesus' feet. We ask Him to spread His wings, His covering over us. And by the way, His covering is huge. His covering is massive. For anyone who would say, Oh, I can, I can believe that God would forgive some people. I just can't believe that God would forgive me. I can believe that God would care about others who have, have pulled their lives together in some way or another. I just can't believe that God cares about me. Listen, His covering is huge. There's plenty of room under the hem of the robe of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And, and he relates it. He says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train, the hem of his robe, filling the temple. Filling the whole temple. It's a big robe. And the edge of the garment fills that whole temple. In other words, the one with authority and power and position has a large enough hymn to cover the temple. Who is the temple? Peter tells us, we are the temple. We are the temple of God. We are being built, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, into a spiritual house. Into a holy temple. And there is enough covering for all under the hem of his garment. Ruth is saying, Boaz, will you cover me? We say, Lord Jesus, will you cover me? Protect me, heal me. Allow me to come under your authority. And we sang earlier Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. Cannot. His wings, His covering. May you be covered by the Lord, Boaz says. Will you cover me, Ruth says. Verse 10. Then Boaz said... May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. You're saying, what you're doing right now, you're blowing my mind, Ruth. I already saw, I heard about how kind you were to Naomi, the the first kindness. How good you were to this, this kinsman of mine, this kinswoman of mine, but now you're showing a kindness to me that I can't even believe. You're choosing me? You want to be with me, he says? He says, instead of going after young men, whether rich or poor. And again, I said, Hollywood can't even conceive of an intimacy like what is here in this moment in Ruth. Her actions, her behavior, it honors Boaz. It appeals to Boaz as something more than fleshly sex ever could. She is appealing to Boaz on this deeply spiritual and intimate level. She's offering him her whole self. And Boaz recognizes this. Now Boaz at this point is an older guy. He's not a young man. He's shocked. This beautiful young woman, Ruth, would would want to be with me, he says. You're not chasing that because there are a lot of young guys around you. A lot of young bucks you could go after. But you would place yourself under my authority and, and come into my house. Think about it. Boaz is a man who has it all. We've already seen him described. He is the landowner. He's wealthy. He's well-to-do. He has probably worked hard to get there. And I imagine Boaz has worked hard his whole life to be where he is, but in all that hard work, 
He kind of missed out. There's one thing that Boaz does not have at this point in his life. Boaz doesn't have a bride. He's got fields. He's got wealth. He's got servants. He's got maid servants and men servants. He's got people to, to work in his field. But he doesn't have a bride. And in his life, he's worked hard to the position he's at, but he doesn't have the bride. He's got noble character. I, I kind of imagine Boaz is kind of a George Bailey type. You know, from It's a Wonderful Life. He's the kind of guy who stays home and, and he works so that brother can go off to college and, and mom can be taken care of and he's got the responsibility and he's doing the right thing and he is an honorable and a good man but he's deprived himself of a bride. And here he is, still working, sleeping there at the threshing floor so that he can be up early, back to work again the next morning and as he is lying there, this beautiful young woman comes to him and for the first time in his life, I might have a bride here. There's a possibility. Ruth chose him. Like Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus also has it all. Jesus also is one who has everything. Lands and fields and servants. And, and he had, when he was in heaven, had it all. But he, he gave it all up. And he came down and became human and lived among us. Why? Because there was one thing Jesus didn't have. He didn't have a bride. And we are the bride of Christ, the church. And Jesus wanted a bride, and so he gave it all for the bride. He sacrificed himself for a bride, even before the bride chose him. And now, now, when you and I choose Jesus, I believe his face lights up, kind of like Boaz. Because Jesus knows you've got choices. In fact, even tonight, there are other young, hip, cool things you could be doing. There are other things you could be pursuing right now, but you choose to be here. I hope you don't choose to be here for me, because if you do, that's severely disappointing. But you choose to be here for the Lord, to draw near to Him, to be in His Word, to worship Him, to spend time in prayer, fellowshipping with other children of God. You've chosen to come lie down at His feet, to touch the hem of His garment, to ask, Jesus, will you cover me? Will you cover me? And I believe the Lord would want you all to know tonight that He noticed that you came. And that he would say, blessed are you for being here. So Ruth desires to give herself to Boaz. And he saw her as a bride worthy of winning. By the way, where he says, that uh, it says, now my daughter, verse 11, do not fear, I will do for you whatever you ask for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. One translator put it, you're a woman worth winning. <laughs> you're a bride worth winning. You're the kind of woman any man would feel just blessed to have as a bride. And so we learn here and now that Boaz desires Ruth too. The desire, the light clicks on. They both want the other. But there's a hitch, verse 12. Boaz says, Now it is true, I am a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. I, I am, I'm in that line. However, there is a relative closer than I. There's someone else, Ruth, honestly, who has legal claim to you. And he has to have first right. First right of refusal. Isn't that nice, ladies? The guy has first right of refusal to her as a bride. And then the second guy, Boaz, could take her if he didn't want her. But it's, it's a problem. There's someone else. There's someone who has a legal claim on Ruth should he choose to redeem her in Israel. Now, Boaz is thrilled to be considered her kinsman redeemer and her husband. Someone else has a first right. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 13. Boaz continues, he says to Ruth, Remain this night, and when the morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. 
But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So verse 14, she lay at his feet, not at his side. Nothing changes. It's still totally upright and appropriate. She lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. That is, before twilight, before the dawn. It was still dark. She rose before one could recognize another. And he said, and notice this, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Why? Because Boaz is protecting Ruth and her honor. In the same way that Ruth was protecting Boaz's honor, back in verse 7 when it says that she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She didn't come you know, banging around in there, making all kinds of noise. Excuse me, where's Boaz sleep? Oh, he, thank you. And go. She quietly, secretly finds him, notices where he lies down, and then lays down at his feet. Why? Protecting his honor. You see, Boaz, noticing Ruth there, could refuse her, she could leave, and no one would know. And Boaz's honor would be intact. On the other hand, Boaz says, let it not be known, let's keep it quiet, you head on out before morning light. Because he's protecting her honor as well. I think that's precious. Verse 15, it says again, he said, now give me the cloak that's on you and hold it. The cloak, this is a a covering over her robe that, that Ruth had on. And oftentimes the cloak was used, especially if they went into the marketplace, if they were buying grain. So she's got this cloak on. He says, hold it out. So she holds it out, kind of like a a pouch there, and he begins to pour grain into it. It tells us in verse 15, she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and then she went into the city. Six measures of barley. Many of the conservative commentators think the measure there is a sia, a sia of barley. Literally, this would be about 60 pounds of grain that he gives to her. Which tells us a couple things about Ruth. One, she's a strong woman. But two, Boaz is outpouring. He is pouring grace onto her. He is showering her with affection, with gifts. The best thing he can give her right then. And it's something not only that is for Ruth, but that 60 pounds of grain would last Ruth and would last Naomi a long time. So he gives her that. And it goes on in... Oh, by the way, i got to tell you this. Six measures. Six measures. I, I think there may be something to this. The, the Babylonian Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, Babylonian Talmud mentions this. This is a quote from it. It was told to Ruth by the spirit of prophecy that from her should descend six of the most righteous men of their age. That as she was given these six seahs or six measures of grain that the Lord spoke to her. Now this is what the rabbis thought. I'm not saying that this is biblical truth, but it's an inter- interesting to consider that from Ruth should descend six of the most righteous men of their age. And from Ruth did descend David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Jesus. Who the rabbis believed those six guys, those six men, were the most righteous who lived. They're the ones, we don't see any mention of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego sinning. We don't see any mention of Daniel ever sinning. David we see sin. But he was a man after God's own heart. And then of course there's Jesus. Six measures, six men. That's what the rabbis think and I think it's interesting. Whether Ruth knew it herself or not, we'll just have to wait and ask her later. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? Naomi's just dying to know. And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. 
for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Just, just a little longer, Ruth, and we'll find out what happens here. Now, I want to get into chapter 4, but one quick thing before we do. Boaz's parents are interesting. Boaz's parents. I just want to mention who they are. His father was a man, the Bible has already told us, a man named either Solomon or Salmon. Any guess as to who his mother was, Boaz's mother? Rahab the harlot. Remember Rahab? She helped Joshua and the, the spies at the Battle of Jericho. She hung that red thread, that scarlet thread, out her window. And they saved her because she saved them. And she goes on literally to be, list, to be listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She is mom to Boaz. No wonder Boaz had an interest in Ruth. His own mother was a Gentile outsider. It makes perfect sense now that he sees Ruth and he has a heart for her, an understanding of her that no one else would have had. But this man Boaz, the son of Rahab, the other Gentile outsider in this amazing story. Boaz understands Ruth, he's been there. And by the way, our Boaz understands us in the same way. Our Boaz gets it, knows what it's like to be an outsider. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had, be, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself, Jesus, was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He gets it. He understands. Let nobody ever say... When you're tempted, don't say, oh, Jesus wouldn't get this. He was tempted in all ways like us. He understands. He knows what it's like to face temptation. You are not alone in that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. He knows. He understands. He knows what it's like to be the outsider. He knows what it's like to be tempted just as Boaz had an understanding of Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The gate was where all the major decisions were made. The judgments were made. The authority would sit there. The judge or the, the ruler of the city would sit there in the gate. So he goes up there and it says, The close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And so he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. Boaz, verse 2, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech. So I, I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. But if you will not redeem it, that is, buy it, when he says buy it, buy it for her. Buy it back. Redeem it for her. If you will not buy it, if you will not redeem it, or if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Okay, I'll, I'll pick up Naomi's land. I'll, I'll add it to my, to my fields. And then Boaz said, um, one other thing. <laughs> On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. It's that Deuteronomic law back in Deuteronomy 25 that you have to, if you have a brother who dies and leaves a widow, the next brother in line who's not married marries her to continue the offspring in the name of his older brother. And so, 
Boaz says, I'll redeem it, uh, the land, but uh, if, if, you, if you buy the land, you've got to pick up Ruth as well. She's part of the package. And the closest relative, watch this, verse 6, said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Now suddenly the land's too expensive. But I can't redeem it for myself, for that would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now I love this. Boaz steps up, he steps in, he accepts the role of kinsman redeemer for both Naomi and for Ruth. He will redeem Naomi's land and he will redeem Ruth into the people of Israel. But who is this nearer kinsman? Who is this guy? He's kind of a he's kind of a heel. He's kind of a, you know, looking out for himself. Not a whole lot of honor here. He'll redeem the land, but when he realizes there's a woman involved, forget it, you know, he's, he he doesn't need to mess with that. But if Boaz represents Jesus, who might this other guy represent? Now think about this. Notice, if you will, back in verse 2, and this is interesting, it's a little hint. Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. He surrounds himself with ten. Now that, by the way, is a synagogue. Instead of Jewish law, you have to have ten men to have a synagogue. Once you have ten men, you have a legitimate synagogue, ten or more. And so he has ten sitting here. He has a synagogue of men. And notice, by the way, by his own admission, this other guy who has the right, the first right to Ruth, notice that he's got the legal claim, but he can't redeem Ruth. I can't do it. Sorry. I can't do it. I believe it's a picture of the law. For we have the law that cannot redeem us. We have the law that can redeem the land. And, can, and redeem Israel as, as it were, but cannot redeem the people. The law has the first right of refusal on your life and mine. The law has a legal claim on us. It's good, it's just, it's full of shoulds and oughts, and we can't do it, so it can't redeem us. It's impossible. And so the law, I believe, is, is a picture here, being pictured by this guy who's got first right of refusal. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin, listen, the power of sin is the law. The law is what gives sin its teeth. The law. Because the more we study the Word and the more we meditate on Torah and the more we get into Bible study, the more we understand we need a Savior. The more I go over the pages of Scripture, especially the Jewish Tanakh, and study through these things, the more I see, wow, it's just impossible. Who could keep this? Who can handle the holiness and the righteous requirements of God? The law is a heavy thing. The law is a good thing. Wait a minute. How can the law be a good thing and also give sin its teeth? Because the law reveals to us our sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 13 said, Until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Paul's saying it, it wasn't visible. We didn't get it. We didn't realize how bad off we were. We didn't see all of the sins that we commit because the law wasn't there to tell us about it. The law is God's flashlight. <laughs> Click. And everything's revealed and suddenly I realize what my shortcomings are. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, saying the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where the first kinsman redeemer had a right to root. Man, he couldn't redeem her. And so Boaz becomes all the more gracious because he can redeem her. He is willing to redeem her. Paul says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The nearer kinsman, the law, can take care of the legal property, but not the people. And so our Boaz steps in. 
And John 1.17 says very powerfully, very succinctly, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Our Boaz, our kinsman redeemer. Verse 7 then says, This was the custom in former times in Israel. Concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. And so the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. You may remember this. This is that Deuteronomic law. Deuteronomy 25.10 says, In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. That's the guy who says, I will not, I cannot redeem this person. I can't follow, I can't redeem this woman for my brother, so here's my sandal. Now some of you may recall also in Deuteronomy 25 that the woman who is not redeemed has the right to spit in the guy's face if she wants to. Tells us that. Ruth doesn't. We see no mention of Ruth doing that, which I also believe goes to Ruth's character, but I think indicates something else to us. Ruth chooses not to spit in this guy's face and neither should we. We shouldn't spit at the law. We shouldn't say, oh, I'm under grace. The law, the law, whatever the law. Who cares about the law? I'm under grace. Like Ruth, we should honor the law. The Bible tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now I'll tell you something, the Bridge Christian Fellowship is a grace-oriented church. It is a church that believes in and preaches the gospel message of grace, that we are saved by Jesus and Jesus alone, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Why then, in a church that is so focused on grace, would we spend 12 weeks studying through the Ten Commandments like we did a couple years back? Because the law is good. Because the law is important. And because though I am saved by grace and I cannot find my salvation any other way, I can still grow in humble righteousness by learning about the law. We said this way back then, that we don't try to keep the law to save ourselves, but I'll tell you what, the law is an effective tool in teaching us about righteousness. Yeah, I want to keep the law. I know I can't, but I strive to because it creates in me a holiness that God wants and desires, I believe, for me, for all of us. There's much to be learned by the law. So don't spit at it. Know that you're saved by grace, but honor the law in the way you live your life. Verse 9 going on, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today. But I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Mahlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that, listen, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Note this, don't miss this. Part of what Boaz was doing in redeeming Ruth was providing Providing for the name of the deceased to continue on. Mahlon's name would continue on in the firstborn son of Boaz and Ruth. Who does the deceased picture? Mahlon, Ruth's husband, is also one who portrays Israel in this story. Mahlon, whose, whose name means sickly, is a reminder to us of Israel. For all they've gone through in the sickliness of their, of their sojourn outside of the land. 
of their diaspora, the dispersion throughout all the world, and the pain and hardship and sickliness and the pining away of the Jewish people across history. Mahlan is a picture of that. And his name is redeemed by what Boaz does. What I'm saying here, listen, remember the holy hoop. I mentioned on Sunday. There's an amazing circle that God worked out. Romans chapter 11 Verses 11 and 12 tell us about this. I say then, the Jewish people did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgressions is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? The Jewish people were the chosen ones. They rejected God, so the gospel comes to the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles live their life with Jesus, creating a jealousy among the Jews that draws them back to Messiah and their own salvation. And it's an amazing plan of God. He knew what he was doing. But even in this, we see that Ruth marrying Boaz, Boaz is not only redeeming Ruth, but Boaz is also redeeming the name of Mahlan that would not be blotted out in the same way Jesus is redeeming through Christianity and through what he has done in grace he is also redeeming Israel he will again bring Israel to faith and as Paul says and so all Israel will be saved Jesus has done this in the name of the people of Israel that they will not be cut off from their brothers verse 11 all the people who are in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. I like that. Wealth in Ephrathah, uh, famous in Bethlehem, and they got it right. They got it right. Wealth in Ephrathah. Remember, Ephrathah means fruitful, and Bethlehem means the house of bread. And through this family line, there would be fruitfulness. There would be bread in Ephrathah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the fruit and the bread of Jesus Christ. But they say something else here, interesting. Verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. May your house be like the house of Perez, son of Judah. What does that mean? It means may your house have authority. May your house have authority. Why? Perez's home had authority because he was the offspring of Judah. Remember Jacob's old prophecy all the way back in Genesis 49.10. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. And Jacob declared on his deathbed that his son Jacob would be the first in the line of the rulers of Israel. That the kings would come from Judah. That the power, the authority, would be from the people of Judah, whose name, you remember, Judah means praise. There's power, there's authority in worship and in praise. Jacob's old prophecy, the kingly line of Judah, and it's through Perez. So as they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, they're saying, may your house have great authority in it. Boaz, Ruth, and your son that you will have. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went in to her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. It wasn't just Boaz and Ruth that made it happen. The Lord steps in, gives her the ability to conceive. She gave birth to a son. Verse 14, The women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today 
And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And verse 16, watch. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And yes, that does mean what you think it means. Naomi nurses Obed, this little child. Naomi, who is too old to be married now. Naomi, in her old age, a miracle happens, folks, and she becomes the nurse. She nurses little Obed. The child becomes like her own, and Naomi is redeemed. And verse 17 says, The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to... Oops. Naomi. Not to Ruth. Naomi. This is Naomi's son. He's the father of Jesse. So they named him Obed, and he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon was born Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. Now watch this. As we close out this book of Ruth, check this out. Ten generations from Judah to David. You count back and you look at the genealogy, ten generations actually from Judah's bastard son, Perez, to David. Do you remember the story of Judah and a woman called Tamar? Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons and Judah's son died. And so Tamar is left without a husband and she says, I, I need a husband. And so Judah gives him the next son in line. He dies. And so Judah says, that's it. I'm not giving you any more sons. <laughs> and so Tamar goes back to live with her father and Judah goes on a little trip. And he comes into the town where Tamar is residing and Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah doesn't know it's her. He goes in to be with her. It's a sordid tale. He goes in with her. And she says, let me hang on to a couple of, you know, your, your staff there and your ring. Give those to me just as, so I can, you know, kind of proof of payment. I'll, he'll pay her later. So he gives those to her. She becomes pregnant. And she sends word to Judah later. Hey, um, I'm pregnant by someone of your tribe. And he says, well, may that man be brought out. And she sends him back the ring and the staff. And he goes, oh, it's me. And so by his dead son's wife... Judah causes Tamar to get pregnant and they have Perez. Judah, Perez, and ten generations later along comes a little boy named David. Why is that significant? Because the Bible tells us, the law stated, that if a child was born out of wedlock, that child was not allowed. In fact, for ten generations, the, the generations of children could not enter into the assembly, literally the tabernacle of the Lord. For ten generations, from Judah all the way down, though the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, Judah couldn't even hold the scepter because they couldn't even enter the tabernacle through that family line. Not for ten generations until David comes along. Now I tell you that for an interesting reason. The first king of Israel, I believe, was supposed to be David. But was not David, it was Saul. Saul, who was not even of the tribe of Judah, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Lord gave the people Saul because they were crying out, We want a king! We want a king! Give us a king! Saul was the people's choice. 
for a king. You'll see that very clearly when we study this in 1 Samuel. Saul was the one that the people wanted. He stood head and shoulders above all the men. He was a good looking guy. Studly and strong. and He looked like a king. And the people said, give us the guy who looks like a king. And God said, hey, I'll give you the king. If you could wait but one generation, that curse would be fulfilled. And the man I plan to have on the throne, David, will be there. You can just wait. But the people couldn't wait. They had to have their king in their day, in their time. God said, all right, you can have Saul. People were impatient, but God is always as patient. His timing is perfect. It's very cool to me that this book ends with the name David. The final word of the book is David. And it's a final reminder about whom this book is truly written. Not Ruth, not Naomi, not Boaz, but Jesus himself is the primary character of the book of Ruth, for he is our kinsman redeemer, our Gaal. And the scepter did not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. Shiloh being that indication of Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing book, and it ends with the Jew and the Gentile coming together and producing an heir. And Jim shared this earlier. Stole my thunder. The heir's name is Obed, and Obed, interestingly, means, means servant or serving. The Jew and the Gentile... The Jew and the Christian come together and the offspring is a servant. Which is really what I believe we all desire to be servants of the Lord. I want to finish with this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll stop there tonight. Ephesians chapter 2. One more thing from the book of Ruth that I'll share on Sunday. But as a conclusion for this book, Paul talks about what happened in the book of Ruth without ever mentioning the book of Ruth. He talks about Ruth the Gentile, the Moabite woman coming into the land, marrying Boaz, the Jewish man, and together what was produced from them, Obed, this this little child. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes the following. He says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. The Ruth, the Boaz, made them both into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Remember the law that cannot redeem you. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And, verse 16, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death, or by having put to death the enmity. That is the the, the friction that's there. The Jew and the Gentile. Back before Jesus came, there were two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Now there are three, Jews, Gentiles, and Christians. And the Lord is going to take all of that and He's going to establish peace. And verse 17 says, He came and He preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Like Ruth became a fellow citizen with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And that will remind you of the Tanakh of God covering the wings that are big enough to cover the whole temple. Amen? Praise God for Jesus, our Boaz. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the book of Ruth. We know, Lord, there's so much in here we could spend a year just in Ruth. Lord, I pray that you will just bless the study we've had and bring us back in our own time to this book again and again to read it to consider it to think about all the implications here but Father we thank you for considering us the outsiders the Moabites worthy of drawing into and under your covering and tonight Father and if you agree with me on this just agree in your hearts to the Lord tonight Father we ask as we place ourselves again at your feet that you would cover us that you would be our authority and that we might walk under the shadow of your wings, in Jesus' name, amen.